Luke. Uh, it's one of the Gospels, and we, we started looking at how uh, a, a man by the name of Luke, who gets credit for writing that book, did a bunch of research in order to, to study out the life of Jesus, uh, his birth, his the things that he taught, the miracles, his death and his resurrection, so that he could share with his friend Theophilus that what he heard was actually true, that he could have confidence to know that what he was heard was true. We were also challenged in this room to make sure that we were reading God's word so that we could have the confidence to know God's word and the courage to live it out when we had the opportunity. And I just, I pray that you guys had the chance to do that, that you were able to get along with God and, and read his word and that you were able to say, hey God, I, I, maybe I don't understand this right now, but you can help me understand this. And that God showed you and that you had the confidence that uh, whatever he was teaching you in your word that day, that you were able to apply that to your life and even have the opportunity to share that with other people. Now, I know with Thanksgiving, there's lots of extra things going on with traveling and those kinds of things are less likely to happen. And it doesn't matter what week it is, actually. If, if you didn't get the chance to do that, today is a new day. This is a new week to make sure that you're in God's word so you're confident that what it says, so then you have the courage to live it out. So today we're going to continue in the book of Luke, and we're not actually going to get to the life of Jesus yet. We will. We'll get there, uh, I think, maybe next week, but we are going to look at the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. And we're going to have a few sidesteps of application for us along the way, and ultimately we're going to see that there's a little bit more that we can apply to our life, even based on the fact that uh, of who John the Baptist was going to be. Uh, before we do, let's ask God to, to help us to, to hear what he wants us to hear, help us to have the ability to remember it and the courage to, to share it and to live it out. Dear God, I thank you for your word. I really do. I thank you, God, that you have taught me so much, even more than I could possibly uh, share with anybody. And I just, I just pray that you'd help me to be accurate in how I teach it and help me to be accurate in how I live it out and help me to have the boldness and the courage to share it with others and to live it out in my life too. I just pray that you'd help us to set aside all the things in our minds that we're, we're thinking about right now, all the concerns and the hurts and uh, desires that we have that uh, we, we want you to answer. I just pray that you would uh, help us to focus on you and, and that you would teach each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's start with uh, verses 5 through 7. So Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And I'll read that and we'll start looking at it, uh, at what it means. It says, In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Okay, so Luke starts out with this guy by the name of King Herod. And as he's writing to his friend Theophilus, Theophilus is a Roman ruler or, uh, of some sort. He's in the high official in the Roman government. And so by the fact that Luke is telling him about King Herod, he's going to be able to connect that this actually happened because it was a long time ago as far as Theophilus' life went. And so he can look and say in history, yes, I know for sure that King Herod was alive. And this is the same time that that happened. I can, I can connect some dots and say, okay, more than likely that this is true. But also, uh, we see that uh, when Luke wrote about these people, he, he started with John the Baptist. The other Gospels don't do that. They start 
which, or I'm sorry, they, he starts with John the Baptist, the foretelling of his birth. The other uh, Gospels don't do that. They start with John the Baptist already being 30-something years old out and doing his ministry. But Luke is looking back and saying, I want to convince you, Theophilus, that this is true. I'm going to give you as much information as I can about who, what's going on in this time frame of life. And so that's why he's part of why he starts back with the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth, because he had parents who uh, raised him to know the Lord, and then he was able to live that out in his life. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and he belonged to the priestly line, uh, which there was 24 different divisions. And this is uh, the priestly line of Abijah, which is number eight out of 24. And his job was to perform specific functions for the temple of God, which we'll look at a little bit later, but we're not yet. His wife's name was Elizabeth. She was also from the line of Aaron. And it says something here I'd like to, to focus on. So this will be our first sidestep. It talks about how they were upright in the, in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, which probably think, yeah, that's exactly what you should be doing. Even in Numbers 18.6, it says, these priests were dedicated to the Lord to perform the services for the tent and meetings. That was their job. You would expect, you expect a vice president to act a certain way. You expect a pastor to act a certain way. You expect a teacher to act a certain way. Why would you expect anything different from them? But the thing that makes these two very special, in my mind, is the fact that they did not receive everything they wanted from the Lord just because they were serving him blamelessly and wholeheartedly. This couple wanted a child. Elizabeth was barren and she could not have kids. Now, in today's world, that's not really that big a deal. You, you Maybe you guys have sisters or mothers. Well, not mothers, that wouldn't make sense. But sisters or friends who were not able to have kids. And you just say, you more feel sorry for them. You know, I know this is something that you want to do. Well, maybe you can adopt. Or there's all sorts of medical procedures that can help you have kids. You know, there's people today who say, I don't want to have kids. So I'm just not going to have kids. But it's, it's not really that big a deal. It wasn't linked to something about God being unhappy with you. Back then, though, it was a very big deal not to have kids. It was a bigger deal for the woman than for the guy, but for the whole, for the couple, not having kids said a lot about you. We find out in verse 25, Elizabeth does eventually get pregnant, and she says, The Lord has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now picture Elizabeth, she's at the grocery store, a little supermarket, and she sees this group of women. They got a baby right here, and they got a baby on their hip, and there's three or four little ones running around. And as she walks by with nothing, she's, she's got her grocery sacks, and, and all these women start whispering. And they're thinking, what's wrong with her? What did she do that made God unhappy with her that she's not having kids? So she's got the pressure of other women. She's got the pressure of other men. Because back then, uh, you could be divorced because you didn't have kids. And so when the guys are gathering around, she knows they're talking about her saying, if that was my wife, I'd get rid of her. But it gets worse than that because the Jewish rabbis had a list of people that were excommunicated from God. And one of those was a Jew who had a wife and didn't have a kid. It was a very bad thing to not have kids. Today, it's no big deal. Back then, it was a big deal. But that didn't stop them from worshiping God from so wholeheartedly. And we shouldn't let that stop us either. 
But how many of us, or how common is it for the, for the human mind, human nature to say, you know what, God, I've been praying for a loved one for X amount of time. I mean, I've been praying for this person to get healed for, like my brother. I mean, I, since he was 17 and I'm 38, so 21 years, I've been praying for my brother to get better. Because he missed like the whole year of his senior year of high school with some chronic fatigue. He, all he did was sleep. He'd lay there and I'd go check on him in the middle of the night. And I'd think, is he still alive? Because his chest just barely moved. So I couldn't even tell if he was alive. 21 years of praying. Maybe it's easy for the human mind to say, haven't I proved myself yet, God? I, I've been praying about me and my spouse. And I've been doing all the changing. I come to church by myself, or I, I, I try to make sure we, we walk with the Lord and we give and we do all these things and nothing is happening. What's the point? You know, maybe, uh, maybe you know, the human mind says, I'm just going to give up on God. You know, God, he could, you know, God is so amazing. He could say, okay, you're healed. Okay, here's a job. Okay, here's Here's your loved one. You know, it is not hard for him. He spoke creation into existence. He didn't have to work really hard and work up a sweat to make these things happen. He just spoke, and it's easy for us to say, God, you can do that. Why don't you do that? And then when he doesn't make you better, when he doesn't help your child uh, come to know the Lord, when he doesn't do these things, it's real easy to say, you know what? It's not worth it to follow you, God, because you're not helping me. But that didn't stop them. They served God blamelessly and kept his commandments faithfully in spite of all that. And we need to do the same thing even when God doesn't do what we want in our lives. So that's sidestep number one. As we continue through Zechariah, he is given this opportunity to serve in the temple. It's, it's just something that he's supposed to do. He does it twice a year for about a week at a time. And there's there are so many uh priest 20 the age 20 and older that they divided them up into divisions and say you just take this amount of time or this week at these certain times of the year and so this this looks like one of those weeks Zechariah is there and he's going to be performing all these special uh duties that God has assigned for the the priests and the Levites to take care of in first chronicles 23 uh verses 28 to 31 this is one of the few times I won't say, hey, please turn with me to the Bible, but otherwise, if you just stay in Luke, you're going to be great. Luke chapter 1. But First Chronicles chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. And these are the kinds of things that uh, his, uh, his, his group of men, his, the fellow priests, are taking care of. It says, The duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple of the Lord, to be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all the sacred things, and the performance of other duties at the house of God. They were in charge of the bread set out on the table, the flour for the grain offerings, the unleavened wafers, the baking and the mixing, and all their measurements of quantity and size. They were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. And down in verse 31, it says they were to serve before the Lord regularly in the proper time and in the ways prescribed for them. So this this is just looks like it's just the average week. This very same thing we did for the last last time this year, the last two two weeks last year, for years and years to go uh, in the past. But this week, this day is something a little bit different. It says in verses 
8 and 9, it says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were out, were praying outside, which is doing everything exactly what they were supposed to be doing. Now, in order to be the guy who gets into the temple to burn the incense, that was something that was chosen by Lot. I told you there were so many of these priests that tasks were divided, but when you got to go into the temple to light the incense, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This was the only time that Zechariah was going to get his chance to go into the holy place and burn the te- burn burn the temple, burn the incense in the temple, which is a very special time in his life. And uh, we know, as we read, we, we we know that Zechariah has been praying for a son, and it looks to me like he's been praying as he walks into this temple. He, I think you know he walks in and he he just sees the beauty. Because when I look at this church, I think. This is a beautiful church. And he's probably thinking, this is a beautiful temple. This is a very sacred time, a very special time. This is rare. I mean, all the other Israelites don't get to do this. Not every priest in his lifetime gets to do this. I'm getting the opportunity of a lifetime to talk with God, and I'm going to take advantage of it. And I can picture him as he's walking in saying, God's in this place. God, I'm going to ask one more time. You know that I don't have a son. And you know how hard that is on us and how much we desire to have this child uh, to carry on our name because he'd be a priest in the same order uh, that we can love and have the joy and the excitement of having a kid. And, and he takes that opportunity, but he doesn't get the response that he's looking for. I mean, this is something that is completely surprising to him. In verse 11 through 13, we find this answer. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. I don't think he was expecting. I mean, he's doing his job. He's burning the incense. He's getting everything measured. And he's he's like, I'm doing this right. This is my once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm going to remember how you do this and so I can go back home and tell my wife Elizabeth about this. And he's just so focused, and all of a sudden this angel appears. And he responds exactly the way everybody else does. I'm afraid. What is going on? There's this, this angel here. And the angel says, it's okay, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer, and I'm here to tell you that your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And that's, that's, that's pretty much all we see at that moment. But he's, he's afraid, but uh, he's going to have the son. And then in, in verses 14 through 17, which we're not going to read quite yet. We're going to, it's, we're, we'll come to that later. But we see that this child to be born was not just any normal child. He's going to go as a forerunner before Jesus to announce that Jesus is coming. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the children of the hearts, the children's hearts back to the father before the day of the Lord comes. But before we get to there, which you'll know we're almost done when we do get there. Uh, I want to continue with the rest of the story, and I just want to read verse 20, the continuing account of the time of Zechariah in the temple talking with the angel. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man. My wife is well along in years. 
He says, he asked a very good question in my mind. I mean, uh, he, he says, you know, I'm old and I don't know how old that is. I don't know if that's 50 or 60 or 70, whatever he considered old. And he's, he's nice to his wife because he doesn't say my wife is old. He says, my wife is well along in years. I don't know if he's afraid that the angel's going to say, hey, by the way, your uh, husband calls you old, but he's, he says, I'm, I'm just going to say my, my wife is well along in years. And which is a very, a very common thing. The biological clock has stopped. It's not something that was an everyday occurrence. I mean, how many, how many people can you think on your fingers of who had this kind of experience? The very first one that comes to mind is Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. And when Sarah heard that she was going to have a son, what did she do? She laughed because, yeah, right, this is not, how in the world can I ever, my body at 90 years old, have a baby? That's something that's pretty unheard of. I can't imagine uh, being a dad at that kind of age, but uh, it was one, one of the few times if you look back in history and say, yeah, look, uh, it has happened. And so this is very rare in his life or in, in the Bible times. So he's, he's asking, I feel like, a very good, legitimate question. One that we'd probably find ourselves asking if we were put in the same situation. Now the answer to Zechariah's question, verses 19 and 20. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. It's as if the angel says, okay, uh, you're in the temple of God and you're praying and I show up and I tell you that you're going to have, your wife is going to have a son. That's not enough proof that this is going to happen. I mean, how many of you have ever seen an angel? Anybody ever guarantee you, you anything like that in your life? I mean, I, I look and say, why couldn't you believe that? But, and the angel says, look, bud, you don't want to believe this? Here's something that you will believe. He says, you, buddy, are not going to be able to speak for the next nine months. Because it, we find out, if you look at verses 23 to 24, that when his time of service was completed, so he finished out that week and he returned home, it says, after this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant. So it, and you're pregnant for nine months. And so it was very quiet around that house. She thought she had a hard time getting him to talk back before that. After that point, was going to be really difficult. That sign language just isn't quite the same, I don't think, for a woman in communicating. Every day for five months, or for five months, for nine months, he'd wake up and he couldn't talk. And that would be a reminder to him, hey, John, this baby is really coming. Because you guys know, when you first find out you're pregnant, you know your wife might be morning sick, but that's it. It's not like all of a sudden there's a beach ball out there. You can't tell that she's pregnant. As time goes on, obviously it gets more noticeable. But it's going to be a reminder to look, John, this was a promise. You prayed for this. This is a guarantee that this is going to happen. And this is also a reminder, John, that you didn't believe the words that you prayed when I told you that this was what was going to happen. So sidestep number two, just because you're walking with God doesn't mean you're going to not struggle with something. Now, God has brought me a long way, uh, and I told the nursing home and the, the care center uh, last week, uh, we talked about the parable of the persistent widow, and I, I told them my struggle uh, in being persistent in praying. 
And the reason I struggle with it is because God doesn't guarantee that something's going to happen just because I pray. Uh, even with my brother getting better, uh, or it's like God has never said, Joshua, just keep praying, that's going to happen. There's no guarantee that that's going to happen. But I can't let that be an excuse. You know, maybe you struggle with something else. Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's greed. Whatever it is, because we are all human and we struggle with something, we don't just say, well, that's the way I am. I don't have to trust God or I don't have to worry about my tongue because that's just the way I am. We got to make sure that we take it to God and we don't try to deal with it on our own. God's there. He can help you and he will help you get through these things. And I feel like in my own life, God has helped me to learn to be persistent. And when we get to that in Luke, I'll, I'll share the story that kind of really, uh, God really taught me a lot and helped me to, to get over my lack of persistence in prayer. But I don't want to do that now because that takes the fun out of it in like 10 months or something. So, Okay, so, uh, so far we have just because you're faithful doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want. And just because you're walking with God doesn't mean that uh, you're not going to struggle with something. And this, this all works together in the, this, the story of John the Baptist. So now we get to this little baby that's going to be born. His name is going to be John. And he's going to have quite a schedule ahead of him of things he's going to accomplish. And we find those in verses 14 through 17. It says... He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Now, just imagine uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, you have this, you go through your whole life, your whole married life, and you're wanting one thing. You want a baby, and you don't get it. And all of a sudden, you find out that you're pregnant, and, and you, you go through all the, the, the stages. You feel the baby kick, the baby's finally born, and you get to say, Look, Look, I don't care how old I am. Look at this baby. I'm so proud of this baby. Now, when uh, Leslie was uh, pregnant the first time, it wasn't like this big struggle to have a baby. And she had a C-section, so which made it easy to know exactly when the baby's coming. And I, I, I don't know exactly how Zechariah and Elizabeth felt about having their only child, but I remember when Noah was born, I was, I was standing at the door, the operating room door. I had this mask over my face. I was sick, but I wasn't showing anybody. Just as, as best as I could hide it, I was hiding it. And I was just, I was just waiting. For, I was at the door waiting to just charge through to go meet this kid, to go have this kid come. I was just thrilled to death. Every part of Noah's life, uh, when he was trying to sleep through the night and when he's trying to learn to crawl and he was trying to be potty trained, I was like, every, everything was a novelty. Everything was super wonderful. It's like I had all the patience in the world for this kid. Having a second kid, I can imagine having four kids. It's like, okay, the novelty's done. Hurry up, sleep through the night. Hurry up, learn to talk. Hurry up, be potty trained. But for the first kid, there's just all this joy and excitement. So if you're a firstborn in here, remember that. You're, you're something extra special to your parents. Anyway... Uh, and just, it says you'd be a joy and a delight to everybody else. Imagine all these other friends that would uh, would be sharing in their joy and their excitement. You know, all her friends that were, they wanted to tell her that they were having a baby, but they knew it would make her feel bad. All her friends that would huddle around and cry like women might do because she doesn't get what they what she was wanting and they feel bad for her. 
All the joy and excitement of something that was so impossible happening. He's going to bring joy to a lot of people. In verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, uh, in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, Among those born of woman, there has not yet arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a very special mission. He's going to do one thing that not everybody else was going to have the opportunity to do. And that was to go as a forerunner and say, this is Jesus. You guys repent and trust him for your salvation and you can be saved. And that was the very special thing that he was supposed to do. But you know, not every baby, even though they're cute as a little baby, they don't all turn up, uh, Caleb. They don't all turn up to make their parents proud all the time. You know, because you have, you have people who, who are here in church that I'm very, I would say, hey, I'm proud of you guys, but there's people who are sitting in jail right now because of something that they did. There's people who are in the grave because of other things that they did. So we know that it's not something that's just common for every kid. Maybe to a mother, their, their child is special, but not everyone turns out to be that special one. And then just being a parent and knowing that, hey, my kid's going to turn out. I mean, that's just, that's one of the best things in the world. You have all this hope. You take them to church. You put all this time into them and you let them go and you have all the hope. And then I assume everybody in here is going to turn out great, but I know not everybody does. And so they have this extra assurance that this is going to be a special kid. It says he will not drink uh, wine or other fermented, he will not drink wine or other fermented drink. Now, It was not a sin to drink alcohol or to drink wine. Jesus turned water into wine. But it it was to say that he is not going to be controlled by anything. You know, some people drink alcohol and wine because it helps them relax. Uh, Just it gets the stress out of my life. I can just set aside the cares of my my day. Uh, Some people, there's the opposite. It kind of stimulates them. It helps them to have the energy and the emotion to get through these things. But he says... I'm not, I don't even want, God's saying, I don't even want this kid to be controlled by anything except for me. Now, his parents, they said, okay, we're going to start John out in this situation. We're going to start him out saying, okay, John, sorry, only grape juice for you, no wine, no fermented drinks. And John, as a kid, is like, okay, mom and dad, I, I won't do that. But then once John gets old enough to go hang out with his friends, he gets old enough to move out on his own. Whose choice, who makes those choices? Mom and dad don't make them anymore. You can try to train them up. But John the Baptist has to decide for himself, okay, you have this special mission in my life. You don't want me to do this, and so I'm not going to do this. And so John makes his faith his own, and he carries on this, uh, what was taught, encouraged about him not to do. So he doesn't take wine or other fermented drink. Verse 15 also says, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Now, normally, we get the Holy Spirit when we trust Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior. We have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that we're going to have eternal life. That's what Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14 tell us. But this, so it's not like John the Baptist was saved from a baby because you got to make that decision on your own. A baby doesn't make it. You can't make it for your baby. So it means, it doesn't mean that he was saved, but it means he was going to be influenced. He was going to be directed by the Holy Spirit, even as a baby, even from the womb. Because we find out 
uh, as we'll, we'll get to in a couple weeks, but uh, a little sneak preview of when Elizabeth was pregnant. She was five or six months pregnant. Mary was also pregnant. She was just like barely pregnant. I mean, not it's like flat tummy, uh, no ultrasound, hardly tell kind of pregnant. And she goes and she visits Elizabeth. And all of a sudden, uh, Elizabeth knows before Mary has even told her, I, hey, I look, I decided I would be the mother of Jesus. I said yes to God. This baby inside of Elizabeth's womb jumped and leaped for joy because of the fact that the Savior had just entered the room in the womb of Mary. So the Holy Spirit was influencing John even from the mother's womb. Now, you know that, you know, babies, they can be a little bit inside, inside their mother's womb. I know my mom told me when she would, when me and my brother were in there, she'd go in the water and we'd start squirming and kicking because it was cold, you know, but there's no way that a baby in a womb can, can see another baby in a womb when they have some kind of connection. It's just not going to happen. They can't see out. We can't see in. There's just no way. So the Holy Spirit completely poked this kid in the rib and said, get excited for him to, to, to respond in such a way that was showing that the Holy Spirit was influencing him even from birth. So continuing about what this kid is going to be like, verse 16 says, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Now you think about the Israelites and you think about how they were slaves in Egypt. They didn't like that, but they were. And as soon as they got out of Egypt, they started complaining because the uh, Egyptians were chasing them. And the, very, the first thing they say is, you expect us, there's not enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out in the desert to die? After God had already showed them all these miracles. I gave you proof that I am real, that I am your God. And over and over, he gives them water. He gives them manna. He gives them bread. He helps them fight their enemies. And he helps them win. And over and over, these people turn back from God. And they had a connection with God, a more visible relationship than you and I do because they were God's chosen people. And he kept revealing himself over and over and over. Now think about, fast forward to the end of the Old Testament between the Old Testament and the New Testament it was about 400 years called the silent years. Now, if the Israelites can hardly walk with God and follow him when he's obvious and present in their life, how in the world are they going to do that when God's not speaking to them? When there's not people saying, get back in line, Israel. And so John the Baptist has his major job to do of trying to bring the Israelite people back to God, which he does when he goes out into the desert. <clears throat> people go out to him, multitudes, great numbers of people Go out to see what is this guy doing out there? What is he saying? And he starts having the opportunity to turn these people back to the Lord. Verse 17, And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There's a lot in that sentence. First of all, he's going in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah on Mount Carmel was willing to face 850 prophets versus one himself. And he was standing before all of them showing in this big competition to say, look, you guys dance and cut yourselves and try to get fire to come out from heaven on your sacrifice. I'm going to pray to God and see if I can get sacrifices to fall from heaven on my sacrifice. And all these Israelite people are watching. And it's one guy all by himself. And, and John the Baptist is kind of the same way because he goes and he's trying to convince all these Israelites 
This is the Savior you've been looking for. This is the one that you need to turn to for your salvation. He also takes on uh, King, uh, told King Herod that it was unlawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife, which ultimately got him put in prison and getting his head cut off. He's like, I don't care what you guys think. I don't care who believes what, but you guys need to know this is the message of the gospel and you guys need to believe it. I'm the guy who's going to come and tell you this is going to happen. He's going to turn uh, the hearts of the fathers to the children, which is something that's directly out of Malachi. The last couple of verses of Malachi, it says, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, Malachi, uh, Elijah is going to come and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their father. Otherwise, I will come and strike this land with a curse. And so those are the last words that Malachi says. The Israelites might even remember hearing about this. Maybe something was passed on. Maybe they read it in a scroll. But this is directly out of the Old Testament. And then we find out when this is occurring in Matthew, uh, after John the Baptist has already died and Jesus is talking about him, he says, this is the this is the Elijah who was to come. Elijah wasn't going to come. Hey, I'm, I'm re... Because Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, in a whirlwind. And so he never actually died. But uh, the prophet wasn't predicting that Jesus, that Elijah was going to come in the flesh. It's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he's saying, John the Baptist is that Elijah who was to come. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. You know, as parents, we have the influence over our kids that most likely nobody else does. You know, when I a couple weeks ago we talked about how you live your life makes a difference in other people's lives. Parents, we have the influence over our kids' lives. If we say God is important, God's important. If I say the Seahawks are important, the Seahawks are important. If I say eating veggies are important, kids learn that, brushing their teeth. And if Elijah wants to make sure these parents are walking with the Lord so that they can help their kids in turn walk with the Lord. And says he's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Elijah did this in two ways. Because he first of all said, I'm going to let you guys know that Jesus is coming. And he's coming very soon in the next couple of days. And go and listen to him. But also he's, he's preparing the way for the Lord because the Lord is going to come again to be the Savior of the world if people will accept him as their Savior. He, Jesus is going to come and take people home for all eternity. So Jesus has, now that we, we fast forward 2,000 years, Jesus has already come once, right? We're going to celebrate that. Actually, timed, I think, just right to have Jesus be born on Christmas Day. And we're going to, we're going to celebrate that on Christmas Day. Jesus came one time. He was a baby. He experienced what it was like to be a man so that he could, and he didn't sin, so that he could be a perfect savior to die on a cross to pay for our sins. Because we as humans, we already know that we cannot be good enough to get to heaven. The Bible says that we've all sinned, and because we've sinned, there's this, there's something separating us between us and God. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, who, we're, who we celebrate, who's already come once, uh, to die on a cross so we could have eternal life. So Jesus has already come once, but Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? You know, there's uh, 
it was it was an exciting time, a little frustrating time. When I was uh, the youth pastor at church, there was uh, two kids that one that I had worked with since the third grade, and I we at Awana, you share the gospel all the time. You're going through Bible verses. It leads into the gospel all the time. Large group time messages. Then he started coming to youth group. We talked about the gospel. Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm saved. And then I find out last summer, he goes to a different meeting, a different teaching, like uh, another Bible teacher. And he goes, oh, I get it. And he's really saved. And then you see, he came back to youth group and I see there's a difference in his life and say, yeah, you were quite the squirrel. And the things you did in your life uh, got you actually put into jail. (laughs) But now, the life you're living now is completely different. I know that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I would The kid said he was saved. All I could do is say, okay, but have you truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is it something you're trying to convince yourself of or, or someone has told you that, hey, you've done this? And the second thing is, are you willing to be John the Baptist? I'm not saying get in your, your camel's clothes and eat honey and and go out and just... Tell people out in the desert about Jesus. John the Baptist came and he pointed to the fact that Jesus is coming. Jesus came once. Are you willing to be John the Baptist and tell your co-workers at work, hey, guess what? Jesus is coming again. John the Baptist did not save anybody. All he could do was share the gospel. He could point people to Jesus and it was up to them if they were going to accept it or not. Are you willing to be uh, John the Baptist to your neighborhood kid, you know, the kids that are ornery, the kids that are speeding up and down the road, the kids that are the good, sweet little kids that you assume they got to know Jesus because of the way they're acting. Or your relatives, the one you're fighting with this Thanksgiving over politics and over the football game and over who did what back way back when. Are you willing to be John the Baptist to them? Jesus is coming back. He's come one time. We celebrate that. We're excited but he's coming back again. Are you willing to share that with other people? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for the gift of salvation. I thank you, God, that you even did it in a fun way. We celebrate your birth at Christmas every every uh, December 25th. And I just thank you that you allowed Jesus to experience what it was like for us as a man so that we could turn to him when we struggle with our sins. I thank you, God, that he, he died on the cross to pay for us so we could have salvation. God, I I just want to pray for each person in here, including myself. God, I know it's hard to go out and talk to people about you because we can't prove physically that you're there. You don't audibly uh, speak when we ask you to, but we know that you're there and we're trusting you. And I just pray that you give each of us the opportunity to share you with people and we would have the courage to share you with people and that those people would uh, be open to hearing about your word and that it would accept you as their Savior. I just thank you, God, for... For all you do for us, and I pray for the courage to live out your word accurately and clearly in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.